0: So would you say you got a better shot of them going in and not so much coming out? You could say that. I did say that. Would you say that? Chester and I paid for his lawyer's condo in Aspen and my lawyer's condo in Maui. <laughs> They're very happy. They're going to trade once a year. <laughs> I would love to sue them. Only it would mean hiring another lawyer.
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice, the Superbrands to opening arguments. The podcast that breaks down the law behind all the news stories you care about. This podcast is sponsored by the law offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC. For entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast.
2: Hey everybody. I'm Andrew Torres, and if I'm reading the intro quote, you know that means with me is the still recuperating Liz Di, <laughs> <laughs> and this is no, Opening Arguments, episode eight thirty-five. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody!
0: Happy Thanksgiving, you guys. Have you guys started cooking? I've started cooking.
2: We started cooking
0: <laughs> so <laughs> much
2: food. I know you started cooking like a month ago. Listen,
0: you got to get this shit done. You got to get this shit done. If you haven't made four pies by now, you're behind.
2: Okay, so I wanted to do the law of Thanksgiving.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, buddy. Knock yourself out.
2: Uh huh. Yo, you say that now, but I was uh, I was discouraged from doing so. (laughs) Instead, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a look at three stories right now that are pretty significant. Um, one follows up on our story from Monday, <laughs> our last episode, uh, regarding Elon Musk and defending freedom of speech by suing everybody else out of existence. Our second story we are going to talk about today. There was a hearing in Fulton County, Georgia. That's the state RICO case brought by Fonnie Willis against Donald Trump for trying to hijack the 2020 election. and And one of the defendants who you may not have kept track of has been a minor player so far uh fonnie willis uh, d.a fonnie willis went to court to try and have his bail revoked we're going to talk about that and the larger implications of that decision and then finally we are gonna sorry to do this to you right before the holidays but we are going to talk about a truly terrible decision that just came out of the eighth circuit with respect to the voting rights act okay but first liz
0: uh, thanks again, you guys, for following me at my Substack, Law and Chaos. It's above a 1,000 subscribers now, and I am so appreciative. So thanks for the support. com.
2: All right. Well, it's Wednesday, so that means it's time for our weekly shout-out to our new patrons over at patreon.com slash law. So big thank you to, just here for the Schadenfreude, <laughs> Laura Harris, Spiro Polos, Rosa Brennan, Jason, Radaclu. To sit in solemn silence in a dim, dark dock in the pestilential prison with a lifelong lock awaiting the sensation of a short. I guess they're going to have to sign up as a Hall of Famer because I really want to know how that sentence sounds. (laughs) (laughs) And Chad McJanet. Thanks to all of you. And uh, if you'd like to join their ranks, you know how to do that. Head on over to Patreon.com slash law. That out of the way, uh, let's let's do our roundup. We got a couple of things that we want to flag, but we are not going to handle in any detail yet. So, point one: uh, following up on uh, your Monday prediction, Liz. <laughs> in fact, Elon Musk, X corporation, did sue Media Matters for America, and uh, I I think you have some thoughts about this.
0: I know, and I really wish I had more voice because I am so pissed. Um, Look, I probably should have left Twitter a long time ago. It's uh, anti-Semitic sewer. So Musk is pissed at Media Matters because Media Matters signed up on a brand new account that followed a bunch of right-wing Nazi content and refreshed a bunch of times and managed to get that content next to advertising for large companies like IBM and Apple. This was concomitant with Elon Musk amplifying a bunch of really gross Nazi content and really gross Great Placement Theory content, anti-Semitic content, um, and, and anti-immigrant content. So he's been shedding advertisers like mad, but the story for Media Matters didn't help. So what he did was, yesterday, he, at the end of the day, waltzed into the federal court in the Northern District of Texas and sued Media Matters, <laughs> Why Texas, you ask? (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, he was probably hoping to get Judge Reed O'Connor. He wound up in front of Judge Mark Pittman, another Trump appointee who is not as crazy as Judge O'Connor. But- not great. This is forum shopping at its best. This is a thing which Republicans decried for years when they demonized plaintiffs' attorneys. They said forum shopping was a terrible thing and a you know a scourge of the judicial system, and now they're they're using it. So th- the theory of venue is one that we've talked about before. We have talked about this with that Kathy, Kathy Griffin case. The theory is that if you publish anything that can be read on the internet anywhere, that gives a court in that place where it can be read jurisdiction over you. So it's ridiculous. So of course, Twitter is a California company and is suing Media Matters, which is a Delaware corporation headquartered in DC and its reporter, Eric Hanonoke, who reported the story, who lives in Maryland. There is no nexus to Texas. (laughs) And yet they're saying, well, this was directed to Texas because you could read it there. And thus we have venue in this place. And I- I don't think it can work. That is, that is not the theory. Of, that is, there's is no jurisdiction here, and 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 of course the the theory itself for all of these business damage claims. They don't they don't allege defamation, even though it's basically a defamation suit. They've admitted that this was content, which was-
2: It does allege uh, business defamation.
0: Right, right. But it doesn't, I mean, they're basically alleging all of this sort of fraud type stuff. And indeed, the Texas Attorney General and the Missouri Attorney General have opened fraud investigations because their theory (laughs) is if you didn't divulge that it took you a bunch of, you know, it took you a long time of refreshing your feed to get that, then you- are, are fraud. It's somehow fraud. This is, this is ridiculous. Um, but I think, look, that's my, that's the backstory. I, I think as a lawyer, we're going to have to kind of decamp from this platform, decouple from it. And it's hard, right? You, a lot of us have built our careers there, but if, if this is a platform that's going to weaponize the judicial system to kind of force much weaker parties into faraway venues to fight lawyers that the richest man in the world can pay infinity amount to lawyers out of you know the money that he's got in his wallet, then right. it's just a gross abuse of the judicial system. And um, I, I just don't think we can be a part of it. So I, I'm going to have to dial back my presence on the Twitter platform.
2: That's a lot coming from you. I, I have so much to say in response to what you have just said. Mm -hmm. I I guess I'm going to take just four points, right? The first is... We will be following and talking about this story, even though the bottom line takeaway from this roundup is this lawsuit is complete garbage. Totally. It is so much nonsense that you and I were going back and forth in our discussion, reading a parallel pleading filed by Donald Trump yeah. and saying, wow, you know, Trump Trump's lawyering seems almost competent by comparison.
0: Uh-huh.
2: So, so that's point one. We're going to talk about it more, but this is nonsense. Point two is a point you have made to me at great length, and you've said it on the show, and I want to say it every time we talk about Elon Musk, and that is we have made by public shaming— I don't mean we just opening arguments, but I mean those of us on the left who care about legal ethics have made it toxic— for big firms to represent Donald Trump, Sidney Powell, and election denialists. Those big firms are still happy to represent Elon Musk and X, and we need to be doing everything we can to talk about this because if we can deprive him of his big law coat factory law firms, that that helps to chip away at the structural problems that you just described.
0: Right. So we talked... Earlier this week, about the lawsuit against the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which Mm -hmm. which published a similar thing and which Trump has sued, we talked at length about that. I believe it was in the Monday show. And he's got Code Factory lawyers on that, right? He's got McDermott, Will, and Emery, and um, and he doesn't on this. He has the former Solicitor General of Texas. He has Judge Stone (laughs) and and another uh, other people who have worked in the Texas Solicitor General's office. But he does not have big firms for this, and. and we also talked about how he basically, his in-house counsel is this guy named Alex Spiro who works at Quinn Emanuel, another very big firm. Right. Spiro's name isn't on this. There isn't any big firm that appears to be in the wings ready to pro-Hoc Vice in for this one. We will see. What? It might happen. He's got quite a lot of money. Um, but I think that there should be shame for this. This is this is a gross abuse of the legal system by somebody who say, who's saying basically, I can afford to harass you for saying things i don't like
2: and i yep. will. Exactly right. So the third point that i wanted to articulate was what you began with in discussing forum shopping because i don't want to say it's good when we do it and it's bad when they do it. <laughs> but i also don't want to leave our audience with the republican false equivalence. So let me unpack this just a little bit. For decades, the Republican argument against plaintiff's lawyers has been that plaintiff's lawyers engage in forum shopping in the sense that they will pick the jurisdictions that have the most favorable law in which to bring their claims. And relatedly, right, they may pick jurisdictions in which they believe there is a structural advantage to filing those claims as well. So, For example, I have talked about I had an eight-week trial in Beaumont, Texas. Beaumont, Texas is known as a very plaintiff-friendly jurisdiction against insurance companies, and I was representing Lloyd's of London at the time, right? That's the charge of forum shopping that is leveled at the left, plaintiffs, Democrats, that kind of bag. What Republicans have been doing since Donald Trump got into office and replaced a third of the federal judiciary with folks whose sole qualification was being recommended by Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society, is forum shopping for judges going to the Northern District of Texas Amarillo Division, knowing that you will only get Judge Kachmerich going to the Southern District of Florida and filing in Fort Pierce, knowing that you have a damn good chance of getting Eileen Cannon, right? This is not forum shopping on a federalist level of, hey, maybe the population here is more supportive of us. Maybe the law is more supportive of us. This is we manage to put hacks who do not care about the law into positions where they can then be empowered to rule on cases in a way that is utterly disconnected from their legal merit. And it's way worse. It is it, it is an antithetical to the rule of law to be picking out an individual judge and bringing your case there. And, and the fact that we look at filing—and I had mentioned this to you when, when we first started talking about this case— The underlying claims in this, right, the business torts, the business defamation, the tortious interference with prospective business advantage, Texas law is terrible on those claims, right? So this is not classic forum shopping in that sense. This is forum shopping in, I hope I get a Trump appointee who, you know, hates the liberal media and wants to stick up for Elon Musk because Elon Musk is palling around with Nazis.
0: Yeah, actually, it's interesting. I was talking to our buddy Mitchell Eppner about that today. And he said, look, it's clear why they don't want to be in California, even though Twitter's uh, terms of service say all uh, litigation with us will be in California. So, you know, they've already violated their own kind of covenant with their users. If you if you use our site, you will litigate in California. But that suppose that they had filed in D.C. D.C. also doesn't have a very strong anti-slap statute and if they had filed in D.C., they could maybe have an argument that, well, that's where Media Matters is and it, it's a, it's an appropriate venue. But having filed in a clearly inappropriate venue, if this case survives, it's going to probably get bounced to California, in which case then they're vulnerable to the anti-slap laws of California, which are very strong. So Mitchell's point was, had they, you know, at least filed in D.C. where there was some rational nexus, they might have been able to get venue but having done this idiotic forum shopping thing in Texas, when they get bounced, they're getting bounced back to the Ninth Circuit. And Republicans have always said, well, there's the Ninth Circuit is forum shopping. Filing anywhere in the Ninth Circuit is forum shopping. And then they invented these single-member districts. But now they're going to they're wind up back in the Ninth Circuit because that's where all this stuff winds up. That's where the tech companies live is in California. Too bad, so sad.
2: All right. And then my last point was going to be the similarities between this case and CCDH in that the allegations that are tantamount to fraud are really critiques on the methodology of the defendant's approach in publishing stories, right? With CCDH, they said, look, you didn't vet enough sources before concluding that, you know, Twitter was making money off of Nazis. And here, the argument is, look, you had to deliberately engineer this particularly curated feed in order to get an Apple ad that, you know, shows up below, uh, you know, explicit white nationalist content. And The counter-response to that is sort of twofold, that number one, you guys are supposed to be the free speech warriors, and free speech includes the right to present poorly vetted or not scientifically collated data. (laughs) And number two, that—assuming, right, this is assuming that these allegations are true, which, you know, I I think there are very good arguments of methodology is fine, right? But the second point is, even if that is true, and even if you are sort of selectively curating the feed, that's not defamation. That's not fraud. So,
0: right. And, you know, even if it can only happen under these weird, straightened circumstances, if you've told your advertisers that it can never happen and it does happen and then they leave you, that's your problem. That's not Media Matters for America's problem. But if yeah. they wanted to do this, uh, Ted Boutros is the lawyer for. Um, for Media Matters, in this case, he's a very famous First Amendment lawyer, if they want to do this and have Ted Boutros depose Apple as to why it left and what proportion, how many times would it be okay for Apple's ads to appear <laughs> next to Nazi content? <laughs> IBM, how much anti-Semitic white power shit do you want to have your stuff next to? You? How many times? How many appearances? Like, this is ridiculous. This this case is just to harass Media Matters. And, and, and they, they know it's not going anywhere.
2: Yeah, there's not that much rat parts in the hot dogs. It's mm, not a great
0: delicious.
2: One. Okay. Next up, today we had an emergency hearing in Fulton County, Georgia, in the State Rico case against Donald Trump on the defendant Harrison Floyd, and you might not recall who that is. We'll tell you a little bit that but District Attorney Fonnie Willis went into court on an emergency basis to get his, that is Floyd's, bond revoked and have him return to prison pending trial. That was denied by Judge McAfee. And let's talk about that a little bit. So here's what had happened. Harrison Floyd, still a proud member of MAGA Nation, is charged with three counts in Fulton County. He's charged with the RICO because everyone is charged with the RICO. And then he is charged with two counts of attempting to intimidate Ruby Freeman. And this is a particularly gross set of activities. And Liz, I know you're eager to to talk a little bit about what Floyd is alleged to have done.
0: Yeah, he, he participated in this effort to try and get Ruby Freeman to say that she and her daughter, Shay Moss, who were both poll workers in Atlanta, had fed fraudulent ballots into the tabulators as Rudy Giuliani and um, Donald Trump insisted that they had. It, it didn't happen. This is that whole thing with the water main leak and the Counting, You know, when they were counting the votes in Atlanta on on election night. It did not happen. But he participated in this this effort to kind of intimidate her. And first that they were trying to reach out to her and they were saying that other African Americans would be able to be a, a better liaison. And then they were just basically trying to intimidate her and, you know, sort of citizens arrest her. It was very, it was very scary for her.
2: Yeah, and Ruby Freeman has hired counsel, hired an outside firm to monitor individuals targeting her online, has had to move. Has ha- I mean, you know, it's just her, her life has been made miserable by Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump, and Magaland. So Harrison Floyd, over the past couple of days, has taken to Twitter and has posted a whole bunch bunch of garbage and I'm not gonna go into it, but very clearly targeted Ruby Freeman, targeted Jenna Ellis, and continues to talk about, you know, how he did nothing wrong and and, you know, the election was stolen in Georgia and all sorts of other stuff.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of rude for him to shit talk Jenna Ellis. Shit talking Jenna Ellis is my job, dude. Just stay out of my (laughs) stay out of my territory.
2: Know your lame. Right. So Bottom line is Floyd was released and had to post a bond from a bail bondsman in order to not have to serve time in prison. Part of the condition of that bond was that he not communicate with any other witnesses in the case, directly or indirectly, and that he not harass, threaten, or intimidate any potential witnesses in this case. And Bonnie Willis looked at this crap storm on Twitter and said, you've tagged Jenna Ellis. You were talking about Ruby Freeman. You're very clearly trying to influence, target, or harass potential witnesses in this case. So we want that bond revoked. We want you to go back to prison. And what Judge McAfee did was denied that motion. In a hearing, by the way, that went terribly Um, for Harrison Floyd one of the only positive aspects was as we have reported from Fulton County Fonnie Willis typically delegates these motions hearings to somebody else from her staff that's good practice she was here in person to argue for this one and it's the first time I've got to see Fonnie Willis's demeanor and ability to craft an oral argument. She's really, really good. So I I walked away with that as a positive, and I thought for sure she was going to get uh, Floyd's bond revoked. With a couple of hours to think about it, I think this is probably the right result, right? The result is, Judge McAfee has said, I don't know that there was sufficient notice in the Conditions on the bond that Floyd had to basically stay off social media and not target anybody. The DA's office knows how to craft that kind of an order, right? They've done that with respect to Donald Trump. And this didn't say, don't shit talk potential witnesses on Twitter. And what was left was Judge McAfee saying, I am going to modify the conditions of the bond and then he will be on notice. And then if he violates it again, Floyd will have those bond conditions revoked. And so, on the one hand, I do get it, right? All of Trump world lives by skating right up to the line. Floyd's counsel at the hearing said, I admit that some of his conduct seems to come very, very close to crossing the line. And, you know, Trump, there is no line, right? Trump just stomps all over it, right? And Mm so it feels like the game plan is to try and shame and trash talk And intimidate witnesses, and every time you get away with it, there's a little sense of you got away with it. On the other hand, you know, I continue to be cognizant of when we had Andrew Fleischman on the show, right? Like, this is we're you know, we're we're the lefties here. Like, we we should not be cheering for pretrial detention, and I I I think it's probably the right result to say, yeah, okay, don't do that again. Maybe. You know, maybe you honestly, maybe you less than honestly thought you could trash talk witnesses, but uh, don't do that anymore. Your thoughts, Liz?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, we've had a lot of litigation about gag orders. And there was was some discussion today by Fannie Willis of some of those cases that we talked about on the show. And I feel like the elephant in the room in all of these cases is suppose you put somebody like Floyd in jail and then Trump does the exact same thing. What are you going to do with him? Because the likelihood that he's going to do that, pretty pretty high. And so I think all of these judges, like you and I have said, and and people get mad, we get a lot of pushback. No judge is going to put Donald Trump in jail before right. he's criminally convicted. That's not going to happen. And so particularly in this case where he has whatever it is now, fifteen other co-defendants. I don't I don't remember the exact number. If you lock one of them up for bad behavior and he does the same bad behavior, what's Judge McAfee if you're going to do? So I think that that's another kind of thing to consider here.
2: No, I, I think that's exactly right. And look, let's let the audience in sort of behind the scenes, which is you and I expected, and I was watching the hearing, so I will take 100 percent of the blame for this, that Based on how badly that hearing went, that Floyd's bond was going to be revoked. And then we were prepared with a story that was going to dovetail into an argument you have been making on this platform in print and elsewhere, that there is a two tiered justice system right now that, you know, what happens to everybody else is different than what happens to Donald Trump, because what Floyd did here was bad and I thought his bond should have been revoked, but it's it's not a patch on what Donald Trump has done and Fonnie Willis, nobody is in court arguing that Donald Trump should be locked up right now, pretrial.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And I would also say that Harris is a little bit nutty. He has not behaved <laughs> in the same He was the one who was the only guy who got locked up because I think what happened was he walked in, instead of having a predetermined surrender, he just kind of wandered in off the street and was like, hey, I'm here. You can put the bracelets on me. And then he was like belligerent. And so instead of kind of negotiating through a lawyer, he got locked up because he was belligerent. And I think he also might have had a record. And so he eventually got out, but he played it. He, he raised a lot of money on social media by saying, I'm the only black defendant here and I'm the one that got locked locked up, even though Fonnie Willis was like, no, we're trying to get you out. And he raised quite a bit of money on that. But he's a bit of a, um, let's say he's a bit of a live wire.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And we saw that in force at this hearing on on Floyd's lawyer's behalf, highlighting on the tweet threads some of the racist invective that was directed at Harrison Floyd. And I believe he's a director of, you know, Blacks for Trump or something, right? Like it's whatever, some garbage group that is designed to play off of that. But yes, that argument was made at the hearing. The other thing that I thought that was really, really interesting in watching this minor hearing unfold is something that you flagged and I want to expand on. And that is that the question here with respect to the bond is a recurring issue that we see from Magaland, right? And that is, can the court impose conditions and then punishments if you violate those conditions that implicate your free speech, Mm -hmm. right? And so part of the argument that Floyd was making and his lawyer made this explicitly on a couple of occasions and got slapped down, was, hey, my client just took to the airwaves to defend himself, to say he's done nothing wrong and that the charges are bogus, and he has a First Amendment right to do that. And what I thought was really, really significant and effective, and and again, Pretty much everything Fonnie Willis did struck me as really, really good lawyering. Mm -hmm. Fonnie Willis had a PowerPoint (laughs) uh, in which she immediately went to the Seattle Times case that we have previously talked about. And that case, uh, as we described in episode 826, is the case in which the Supreme Court said when the Seattle Times was a defendant... In a libel action and not just reporting on somebody else's cases that, hey, look, like you're a participant in this litigation, so it is a lower threshold for you being gagged as a newspaper than it would be if you were reporting objectively on somebody else's trial. Right. And that Seattle Times case it's from 1982 is really dispositive of mm-hmm. all of the terrible arguments that Donald Trump has been making. Across the board in every case, every time he says my free speech. Right. That is right. right. But like you don't have the free speech to disrupt a, a judicial proceeding. You don't have free speech to intimidate witnesses. You don't have free speech to intimidate judges and their clerks. Right. Like it's It's just that's not a good argument. And and the fact that Fonnie Willis was instantly prepared To go to Seattle Times and and more. Right. Had an in-depth PowerPoint prepared on this point. And that Judge McAfee, as the predicate to his ruling from the bench, came out and said, I want to be very clear. You do not have a constitutional right to be released on bond. The case law is 100 percent in favor that a bond can restrain your rights that they can restrain your constitutional rights, right? So, for example, like one of the very common conditions of releasing somebody on bond is to say you can't talk to any of your co-defendants until you go to trial, right? And, like, that's a clear, like, if we just said, Liz, you can't talk to your friends, like, that would be a violation of your constitutional rights. But you could be required to give up your constitutional rights in exchange for for not having to go to prison.
0: Yeah and that was actually it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because Trump's lawyers were arguing on Monday, that's yesterday as we record this, in the D.C. Circuit, and th- they made this kind of maximalist First Amendment argument. And the government said, look, that's ridiculous. We can lock you up pending trial. And if we can take away your right to like live in your house, we can definitely restrain your speech and say you can't intimidate witnesses on social media. So it, it is a good argument. I mean, because all of these these people say the First Amendment, the First Amendment. Well, you you have a Fourth Amendment to be free, you know, from searches and seizures. But that doesn't mean that, like, if you are deemed a danger to the public, then you can't be locked up pending trial. Being under indictment does involve a certain proscription of your liberties.
2: Yep. For example, a frequent precondition to being released on your own recognizance is that you surrender any firearms. You have a Second Amendment right to own your guns, but not when you're a criminal defendant, right? Well, the Fifth Circuit will probably
0: take care of that soon.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I was was giving you some low-hanging fruit to swing (laughs) at on that one. The bottom line is Judge McAfee was 100% picking up what Fonnie Willis was putting down, and given that that free speech argument is part of the substantive defense of most of the defendants on the Rico allegations, mm-hmm. I think it gives you a pretty good preview of where he's heading and where various motions to dismiss that are going to be filed in this case are are likely to to to, to wind up. So at the end of the day, I can't fault Judge McAfee for his decision, which was to be very very clear as, as to summarize he said, look, I believe the district attorney's office has shown that Harrison Floyd engaged in multiple technical violations of the terms of his release. But not every violation demands the same remedy of revocation of the terms of those bonds. So let's make sure that he knows he can't ever do it again. Let's preserve the right of the district attorney's office to come in and seek revocation if he does. But for now... I'm not going to put him away. And and let's be honest, that would mean putting him away for the better part of a year, right? I mm-hmm. you know, this is this is a long long time. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I don't know that Floyd has that much criminal exposure, right? <laughs> in yeah, I in don't the main. So, yeah. Okay. That's case number 2. Case number 3 is a decision called NAACP versus Sanders out of the Eighth Circuit. Yes, Sanders is Sarah Huckabee Sanders. That had to be reminded uh. because my brainstem keeps trying to throttle out the information that she is governor of Arkansas. But uh, she is. And uh, and this case is terrible. Yeah. We are going to cover it in depth. but uh, But here's the summary of what you need to know. In 2014, you will recall... In Shelby County versus Holder, the pre-Trump, John Roberts-led Supreme Court struck down the Voting Rights Act of 1965's pre-clearance requirement. That was Section 5. Section 5 said that any state with a history of disenfranchising African-Americans before they passed a law that would potentially disenfranchise African-Americans had to go to a three-judge panel in the District of Columbia and get approval for that law. It is the primary mechanism by which we have prevented Republicans from disenfranchising black people throughout the Old South. And so, of course, the right-wing Supreme Court had to strike that down. It is a linchpin of their strategy to hold on to power despite being an increasingly smaller political minority. That left intact at the Supreme Court level. right? One of the arguments that John Roberts gave was, look, you know, we've had a black president. There's not that much discrimination. Racism's over. Right. And and that we are lightly paraphrasing the Roberts opinion in Shelby County. But part of that that was buttressed by law was we're not doing anything about Section two of the Voting Rights Act which specifically prohibits a state from discriminating against voters on the basis of race and was amended by Congress to make clear that you did not have to prove specific intent, right? Section two says Mm -hmm. you can prove a discriminatory outcome. And we've had elections map expert Joe Dye come on the show. Oh, home for home
0: for Thanksgiving, home for Thanksgiving.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And we have talked about Jingles versus Thornburg right the 1987 case that described what are now known as jingles districts right so in other words section 2 is a much smaller mechanism than section 5 because you have to wait until they do a bad thing and then you know hope that the supreme court listen right like there's there's a lot of problems but at least it was there and it let private parties it let individuals sue and say this district looks an awful lot like it is discriminating on the basis of race. Now, under NAACP versus Sanders, a 2-1 panel. By the way, this is an all-Republican panel, so you know this is a George W. Bush appointee in dissent, but a 2-1 panel of the Eighth Circuit has ruled that individuals can't sue under Section 2, that only the Attorney General can sue. Think about what that means. (laughs) That means if you have a Republican president who wants to suppress votes and you have a Republican attorney general, if the attorney general does not join in the lawsuit, then this decision, if allowed to stand, will say that that lawsuit gets dismissed for a lack of standing. And if you're thinking, how in the hell is that possible? The answer is it's not. But what you have is. An, a right-wing activist Supreme Court that does not care about precedent, that has decided to rewrite a 60-year-old law because they think it means something different. So I
0: don't know that they think it means something different. I think the answer is because they can, right? Because it entrenches uh, a minority party in power, and that's yep. who appointed them, right?
2: Yep, absolutely.
0: It means what they say it means. To be fair, I do not think that the Supreme Court is going to go this far. But I don't, I don't, I'm not
2: sure about I, that. You, your lips to God's ears on that one, mm-hmm. Liz. So here's the relevant standing provision. It is 52 U.S.C. Section 10308. and It says, whenever any person has engaged or there are reasonable grounds to believe that any person is about to engage in any act or practice prohibited by, and then it lists the sections, and that includes Section 2, racial discrimination, the Attorney General May institute for the United States, or in the name of the United States, an action for preventive relief, including an application for a temporary or permanent injunction, restraining order, or other order, and including an order directed to the state and state and local election officials to require them, one, to permit persons listed under the relevant chapters to to this title to vote, and two, to count such votes. Now, you may have heard me emphasize the bold, italicized may that is in our notes, right? Since 1965, since this law was passed, everybody, the people who voted on it, the people who voted against it, the plaintiffs who have brought those cases have understood what that means. May means May, right? means individual voters can sue. and if the individual voters sue, then the attorney general can look at it and go, "I want to be a part of this case. I don't want to be a part of this case. And statistically speaking, this comes from the dissent, over the past 40 years, there have been what we know of as 182 successful cases brought under Section 2. Of those 182 cases, 15 were brought by the attorney general standing alone, and the remaining 167, right, an overwhelming supermajority, were private plaintiffs cases in other words everybody's always understood that this section means that you as a voter get to look up and say hey my vote doesn't count in this district i am suing under the voting rights act and the eighth circuit has now decided to read that may as no no this is the only party that can sue and so if this is allowed to stand going forward no individual plaintiffs will be able to bring Section Two cases under the Voting Rights Act,
0: and that will be a really serious disaster.
2: Yeah. So, I think what is likely to happen next is that there will be a rehearing on Bonk. but I don't know. Right? I mean, the Eighth Circuit is not it's not the Fifth Circuit. It is a, it is a conservative circuit, but um, I don't know. I do think it is part of our mission here at OA to tell you, just like when we say, hey, everybody's freaking out about X, it's not so bad. Everybody's freaking out about this decision, and they are right to do so. If this stands, this guts the the backstop to major enforcement mechanism against active racial discrimination within the Eighth Circuit. And I want to amplify on that for Just a few seconds, which is, remember that when a circuit decision passes, it is law for the states over which that circuit sits. So the Eighth Circuit includes North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, and Arkansas. But also, this is an open invitation, if allowed to stand, for any other circuit that might like to take a similar approach to understanding and interpreting the Voting Rights Act. It's really Yeah, the really Fifth
0: Circuit's bad. just mad they didn't think of it first.
2: The Fifth Circuit we'll talk about this we we when we do a, a more in-depth episode. Uh just last year reaffirmed that the Voting Rights Act Section Two provides individual plaintiffs with, with a cause of action. Ah uh, suckers. You know, si- just, kidding. Yeah, no, just kidding. Since nobody's bound by precedent, you know, all the, the laws made up and the points don't matter. Uh we're gonna we're gonna continue to track. Okay. Well that's our roundup for today's episode. And Liz, thank you so much for being here with me today and sticking it oh, out. Oh,
0: no. And you guys, just a happy Thanksgiving. And I am so grateful for all the support that you have given us this year. It's, it really means a lot. It uh, it means everything. So thanks, guys.
2: Me too. And uh, thank you all for, for being show listeners. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And we will see you again on Friday.
0: Go get your pies done.
2: You got into Harvard Law?
0: What, like it's hard? This has been
1: Opening Arguments with Andrew Lynch. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash law. If you can't support us financially, it'd be a big help if you could leave us a five-star review iTunes, Spotify, whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use. And be sure to tell all your friends about us. For questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at openargs.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at openargs. This podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media, LLC, with assistance from Teresa Gomez and Deborah Smith. Copyright 2023. Opening Arguments Media, LLC. All rights reserved.
2: Should be fixed. Let me know. I believe, even when I get pissed off, that this isn't going to blow out now.